You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, Attorney Dan Mayer and Licensed Counselor Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now, here are your hosts. Hi there, and welcome back for part two of our series on contracts. Today, we'll be talking about common terminology that you'll find in contracts. Now, before we do the deep dive into all the legal terminology found in contracts and what they mean, Dan and I thought it would be fun to talk about the differences we notice between how counselors and mental health practitioners talk and how attorneys talk. As you already know, counselors and mental health therapists, we pay very special attention to the language people use. And when working with clients, we highlight the use of must, should, and can't. And we work with people on recognizing the use of that language um, and kind of exploring that and also finding other language that we can use instead. Attorneys, however, love some of the language that we stay far away from, such as should, shall, and must. Since you're already familiar with these linguistic concepts as mental health practitioners, today we're going to be learning about the legal perspective on terminology. Yes, and kind of a follow-up on that anecdote, it reminds me of a time, um, not recently, but a while back, where I had been drafting a contract and an editing contract and reviewing a contract, and I sent it over for review and I got it sent back to me. And all the places I wrote should and shall, um, <laughs> especially shall, had been crossed out. And the person had been like, well, this seems like too strong a word. How about like may or can we do this? And I was like, no, this is a legal contract. And we shall, we want them to do it because in the legal world, shall means you are acquired. Like, you know, you shall do the following in a legal contract means that the person is obligated to do that. So it's a very specific term that you see in legal contracts and shall is critical. It's a critical word. Um, and it's, it's, it's a funny, just a funny thing to, to, to sometimes remind myself that, like Melissa said, the words, you know, they, they mean different things to, to a lawyer maybe than they do with the mental health practice, but they are a critical component of contracts. So we left episode one off with a bit of a, a cliffhanger in the nerdiest way possible, of course. Um, if you didn't check out part one, I would recommend you do so before you listen to this one. Um, so you can understand the basic constructs of a contract before you kind of venture into the more you know, weedier part, the, 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 the heavier part, which is all the terms that are in a contract. We're going to cover first what we call recitals, and then we're going to move into some of the more common terms you may find in contracts signed by practitioners. So let's start with what we call recitals in a contract. So recital is not what you take your your daughter or son to um, when they are playing music or doing ballet. Sorry, it's a really bad dad joke, so I'm sorry. But they are important in the contract. And you definitely know what they are. You've definitely seen them, even if you don't know what the word is. They usually will say something like this. Whereas A in the, is in the business of selling chocolate, and whereas B is currently looking to buy chocolate, and whereas A desires to sell chocolate to B, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you're probably saying, oh, yeah, I've seen that. And yeah, it's fancy wording to do something that's really simple, right? Uh, if you're noting a, a trend here, lawyers do like to use a lot of complicated words when they're actually talking about something that's pretty straightforward. What the recitals do in a contract 
is they provide background information on why this contract has happened. It's, you know, they usually states what the parties to the contract already know and what their intent is and why they want to be bound by a contract. You know, and again, this is a really oversimplification. You know, certainly I'm sure my law school professors are probably cringing. Um, but again, it's I want it to just be very simple so that you listening can understand what we're talking about. So, and again, the next time you see a recital, right, if you're in a contract, you look at it and you read it, you know, I'm hoping you'll look at it and say, oh, right, okay, so this is what Dan was talking about. Here's where they're saying, well, this is what's happening and, you know, and why is this happening and why are we doing this contract? And that's usually what's going to be contained in, in the recitals. Um, and I'd be curious to see if it meshes up with kind of what, I, what I'm mentioning here. So um, that's important. There's usually the first thing. And then we kind of move into the, the basic principles um, uh, of, the, of the contract usually, right? So let's start with them, right? Now, a couple of initial notes, points just to, to make before we jump into it, okay? Each contract, of course, is going to be different because, you know, contracts serve many different purposes, right? Melissa said there could be insurance contracts. Um, it could be an independent contractor contract. could be a lease. Um, could be anything. Could be a, you know, I'm doing coaching. Um, could be something where I'm having you sign an outdoor, um, you know, want to do outdoor therapy. Could be some sort of waiver. Um, so contracts serve many, many purposes, right? And they vary, will vary in terminology. Um, it's important to, to know that. So it's always important. And this is why I always stress this. Always important. I recommend that you do work with an attorney because they can make a determination about which of the provisions um, that we're talking about here, if they should be in a contract you have, right? Um, and I just want to say um, they should be in a contract to give us a little bit of a hard time, um, but that's up for an attorney to determine. And that's why you need to be talking. So let's start with one of the first terms you usually will see. Um, and that's what's called the contract term. Okay. Now these may vary in terms of what, how they're titled, but the contract term is it may be pro, uh, combined with something else or maybe on its own. And it basically just means simply what is the period of time the contract is for? Does it renew automatically or does it end on a certain date or upon a certain action taking place, such as payment of services, such as I give you the copy or you pay me $500, the contract ends, right? Next, we have duties and responsibilities and rights. And these are usually a little bit lengthier. Um, sometimes they're separate sections. Sometimes they're crammed together. But What's important to understand is that what these sections detail is exactly what each party is required to do under the contract. So using our original example, right? A is going to sell a copier to B, right? B will be submitting payment to A. And so in this section, it will detail how that payment's going to be made, right? It will detail each party's contractual obligations here. What are the rights that they have? Um, and that's really what a rights clause does. It details what are the rights each party is essentially guaranteed under the contract. What are the obligations they have under this contract? What do you have to do to satisfy this contract? Those are the things that are going to be in a duties and responsibilities, you know, or, or rights section. Next, of course, um, and, and there's no particular order here. I'm just listing these out. Of course, you have a termination clause. And that's exactly what it sounds like. When does a contract end? What are conditions that, it, that must be met for, for it to be terminated? Um, it also may, be, may, may cover what happens if you need or want to exit a contract early. You know, if you are yourself a 1099 contractor um, and you want to leave you know, the, the, the deployment with the agency or practice you're with, 
and you want to break that contract, the termination clause, if there is one, is going to tell you exactly that information. Okay. It's going to tell you how, you know, if you want to exit earlier, here's how you do it. Right. Can you even do it? I've seen some contracts where there is no termination clause. And that's a problem because that means that not necessarily you can terminate it early. And that might be something also that's come up for people during the pandemic. If people have a lease um, due to the pandemic, people may have been looking at, is there anything in our contract about termination or is there not? Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. In leases, 1099 contracts, things like that, you, you do tend to find them, right? Again, if it's not there, that's actually a big deal. And I've actually seen a couple that um, independent contractor contracts where the person or whoever was drafted did not put them in. And when the question came up of how do I get out of it? The answer is it's not going to be as easy as it would be if you had a termination clause that said you have to give 60 days notice to, you know, to the other parties to terminate. That's pretty standard, right? That just means that you have to give 60 days notice and hey, I'm terminating the contract in 60 days, right? You're complying under that termination clause, right? And it makes it clear for both parties. This is how we will proceed. Mm-hmm. Correct. Right. So that's a critical point. Almost all contracts will have that. You may often see something that's called an indemnification clause, right? It may say indemnification or have something that will have the words indemnification in it, right? And this is important, all right? Basically, what it just means is that you are agreeing to, a, to an indemnification clause. What it means is you are agreeing to hold another party harmless against future legal claims for certain acts which they might otherwise be held accountable for. Right. So it can be mutual. Both parties are agreeing to indemnify the other. It can be one way. You know, one party is saying, I agree to indemnify you. Um, you know, if you rent a car, for example, right, from a car, a car rental company, and then you get an accident, right? If that third party goes to sue you and the rental company, and you've signed a contract that has an indemnification agreement indemnifying the rental car company. Right, they can turn to you and say, "Well, you agreed, you know, to help defend us. You know, you agreed that we would not be held responsible for your actions when you renting our car. So you're going to have to cover our costs, essentially, because you agreed to indemnify us from, you know, from harm." Right. So um, it's a way for people to protect themselves financially from being financially liable, I should say, uh, for another person's action or negligence. Right. Another example I can give that's more related to the practice field might be if you hire a contract therapist um, and your contract has an indemnification clause, um, potentially, let's say the therapist does something that gives them legal exposure, a third party tries to sue them, right? As well as your practice, that contractor, you may be able to go to them and say, you're liable for any costs associated with me having to defend this now because um, you've agreed to indemnify me from your, your negligence. Okay. So this is one of those areas where of all the terms we're going to discuss, this is a big deal, right? If you're looking at a contract and you're signing a contract or you're, you want to draft a contract or, or you're doing a contract and there's an indemnification clause, I highly encourage you to be consulting with an attorney because what's happening is somebody is waiving, um, is, is basically shifting the legal liability to someone else, right? And if it's against you, if you are indemnifying someone else, it could have legal, serious legal ramifications for you. So it's very important that a lot of these terms, I'm going to say this repeatedly, um, a lot of these terms, if you see them in a contract, if you're not consulting with an attorney, you must, you really, 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 again, that word should be consulting with an attorney. Okay. Next is sometimes it will appear in a contract in some form or another, you know, confidentiality, non-disclosure. 
those are probably pretty straightforward. You, you guys probably know what those are pretty much. But what they do is, of course, they dictate if there's confident information that you are required to protect from disclosure. Um, and then typically in the event of a breach, um, the other party may have remedies uh, because you've signed an agreement saying, I will not disclose certain information. It's held it confidential. Arbitration clause. This is pretty common. Again, this is one of those things where your legal rights are being affected. You sign a contract where there's an arbitration clause. So it's important you understand what that is. Basically, what it's doing is it's providing um, a process for re uh, resolving a dispute through a third-party arbitration rather than a court. Okay? So this also may be required before you can advance to pursuing other legal options that you must go to arbitration first. So that's really important. Again, you sign a contract with an arbitration clause. You're basically saying, I am not, you know, even if I have a claim against you, I am agreeing to go to a third party to mediate, to ar you know, arbitrate this before anything else can happen. So, you know, again, very important that if you're seeing this in a contract, you're not sure what, you know, what to do with it, you should have an attorney, attorney be advising you. Okay. Mm -hmm. Choice of law. Um, I also say you may also be governing law, may also be seen as something like choice of jurisdiction. I've also seen ones where it's called forum selection clause. Okay. They're all, you know, it's a jumble of words. I get it, but all means basically the same thing in some way or another. Um, it is a critical provision too, because it determines not only where a dispute over a contract can be heard in what jurisdiction, but whose laws can be used to apply to the contract, right? So is it specifying, you know, the laws of Maryland? Is it specifying that the laws of Pennsylvania govern? Um, or is it specifying where it can be held? Can it, you know, does the, um, any disputes have to be heard in the courts in Maryland or in Pennsylvania or California? I've seen ones as specific as they must be uh, held, uh, disputes must be heard in the courts of this county in this state. So it can get very specific. Again, it's really important because it's very critical that you are aware of the, what this is, that you are consulting with an attorney here. Because if you sign a contract and you have a legal dispute and you're in Maryland and that contract for any reason says California is the venue of jurisdiction, it is possible that the laws of California could be held to apply to the contract, not Maryland's. It is possible that this view could have to be heard in California. An attorney can help go through that with you and make a determination as to what's really going on. So it's very important that you're doing that. Waiver. This is pretty common. Um, clause essentially means that in the event that the contract is, someone doesn't do what they're supposed to under the contract or the contract itself is violated, let's say, a party who has a right to pursue action may waive their, their they, they, you know, make decision to not pursue that action at the moment. And what the waiver clause does is it says, well, just because I decide not to act on it now doesn't mean in the future, if there's a future cause of action for the same reason, I am not waiving my rights to pursue that, right? That could be useful if like someone does breach a contract or if there's a term provision that isn't met that's supposed to be, rather than going, all right, I'm suing you, right? If two parties want to try to work things out, a party might say, I'm not going to, I will agree not to pursue this right now, but I need you to, you know, correct the breach. I need you to, to start doing what you're supposed to be doing. You know, like paying rent, right? Oh, you're two months behind rent. I'm not going to hire my attorney. I'm not going to have my attorney come after you, but I need the rent paid up, right? That doesn't mean the landlord is saying, I never can collect or go after you on rent ever again. They're just saying, I'm agreeing right now. I'm forestalling my rights to legal action, right? And that's a pretty common term, severability. This is a big clause. This is a really, really important clause, in my opinion. I mean, a lot of these are, but this is a big one, too. 
Um, and because basically what it means is that if a certain provision of a contract is ever challenged is, is, and becomes rule, is ruled invalid or struck down by the court, the remaining contract is still legally binding, right? So that invalid provision can be severed from the contract. That's what we're talking about here, taken out of the contract, excluded, and the contract will still stand on its own. Contract that does not have a severability clause, in my opinion, is problematic because what that means potentially where it can be harmful for a practitioner is if you have a contract drafted with someone and you have them sign a contract with you and there's no severability clause and they challenge, they pursue legal action, you pursue legal action and struck down, the entire contract can be thrown out. I mean, that might not really be what you wanted to have happen, right? You don't want the contract thrown out. You want to have it still stand on its own, even if someone says, this particular provision really can't be in here, right? If that's not there, there's a potential that a court could say this entire contract's invalid now. So that's why this is so, so important. You know, for example, if a contract has a non-compete clause, right, and it gets struck down and there's a severability clause, it's possible that the contract may be still permitted to exist. So if a 1099 contractor uh, contract has, an, has a non-compete clause, which in my opinion, it shouldn't, right, that clause gets struck down, the 1099 contractor contract is still valid, right? That's why this is so important. Okay. Um, notice. You probably do notice these provision. You probably see this and like, oh yeah, yeah, you, right. I'm sure that you've you've seen this provision in contracts before. Okay. It's really simple. Again, it just sets out the manner and form that parties provide notice to each other regarding the contract. Really, that simple. You know, it usually is especially prevalent when there's situations where one party feels the other has breached its duties, or something has not been done, performance has not been done. Service has not been provided that should have been provided. Payments not been made that should have been made. You know, um, you know, it's basically to provide notification. Hey, you did not pay me when you're supposed to on this date. Hey, you were supposed to deliver these services. You never did. How do you tell the other party that that's you're upset about this? That's in what the notice provision does, right? You know, example is you know if you've ever been yourself, or you have yourself have contractors working for you. Um, your contract probably has a notice provision, right? And so what it means is that if you're going to terminate that contract early, or if they move to terminate their contract early, they have to give you a notice. Hey, I'm terminating the contract. I want to let you know. How do they do it? That's what the notice provision tells you. Here's how you deliver notice to the other party about what is being done or should be done, has been done, whatever it is related to the contract. That's what the notice provision tells you is, hey, this is how you notify the other party. It's really that simple. Yeah. Right. So just take a minute and check in with yourself and see how you're doing with all of this language and terminology mm -hmm. and just kind of pay attention to how it's sitting with you and notice whether this is all sounding familiar. It sounds like something that you've seen before or whether your brain is starting to feel a little swirly. Um, if you need, you can always push pause and replay to keep on going um, as we're going over all of this new terminology, because it's a lot. It is law. And I would not be surprised. I fully expect that there may be people who take this podcast episode, they bookmark it, and they replay it from time to time. And that's fine. You know, this is overwhelming. Lawyers go through three years of law school. And then usually after law school, you know, start off as young lawyers training under, you know, an older lawyer if they're lucky, right? Usually at a law firm. So a lot of this stuff gets hammered into us. You know, you review copious amounts of contracts. This becomes pretty second nature to us. Um, you graduated from a program you know, that you know, gave you the licensure. Uh, it made you the ability to become a licensed professional. No one's expecting you to be a lawyer here. 
And I know that some of these terms can be overwhelming or it's a lot of information. That's okay. Again, the whole point, I think, why we're doing this podcast episode is because these are all terms that you're going to see in contracts that you're probably going to sign or have signed. So just having a basic understanding here, that's all you need. No one's expecting any more. You know, you still should be consulting with an attorney. Like we've, we constantly say, you, you know, definitely still consult with an attorney. But know that these terms, we're hoping that you listening to this, next time you look at a contract, we're like, oh, yeah, I remember Dan saying the notice provision. Right. Here's the notice provision, right? Oh, yeah, there's the severability clause. And now all of a sudden you're like, yeah, I get it. The severability clause is what allows the contract to, you know, a term to be taken out, you know, struck down in the contract and the contract can still stand on its own. Right. That's it. Right. It's a lot more complicated. Attorneys dealing with this, it's a lot more complicated. Right. And I agree. It is. And I'm not trying to make it sound like this is just like, no, this is the very, very basic nuts and bolts, but that's all you really need to know, in my opinion. Right. All right. So another uh, uh, term that comes up is assignment. Right. And what this means, again, it's, from my perspective, it's straightforward. I'll try to explain it that way too. Essentially, what it means is that when it's present, it typically, typically prevents parties from assigning or subcontracting the rights in the contract and obligations in the contract to a third party, right? So without it, if it's not in a contract, a party can hand off its obligations and benefits to a third party. And now that third party is the one who has the obligations under the contract and has the rights in the contract. A lot of times there's, there's a number of reasons why you may not want that to happen, right? If two parties agree to a contract, you know, you may not want someone else now all of a sudden being in a contract with someone else. You never intended to be in a contract with someone else. You intended to be in a contract with this specific person. So an assignment clause that prevents that, that's what it does. It says you cannot assign this to anyone else. This is between you and me. All right. You know, your practice is my practice. So your business is my business. That type of thing. Right. Okay. Force majeure. Right. Ah, the superior force clause. Right. No, really. That is actually the literal French translation. It is the superior force. Um, it's, again, another example of clever legal words being used to describe a very simple, straightforward concept, right? And you probably already know what this concept is, even if you don't know it, don't realize you do, okay? It's what is known as the act of God provision, right? So basically says that if something happens that's beyond my control, I have no control over, that delays my obligations, um, in a contract or prevents me from being able to carry out the terms of a contract, then either excuses me from those terms or temporarily delays those obligations to, to do that, right? So for example, paying rent for at least office space that is destroyed by a hurricane, right? I can't pay you rent for a building that doesn't exist anymore, <laughs> right? Because an act of God, a hurricane came and destroyed the building. Other circumstances often cited that you may see are terrorism, war, natural disasters, okay? The key point here for you to understand is that normal everyday life events are not covered by this, right? So just because the Ravens game is being played on a, a day that's not normally played on and you're supposed to be paying your rent and you're driving a check down to your, your, your landlord's office by 5 p.m. and you don't get there in time because of traffic, that's your fault. <laughs> that is not force majeure, <laughs> okay? You can't use that clause for something like that. But you can say, oh, look, there was a tornado. There was an earthquake. My office is completely unusable right now. I, I can't even work there, right? Maybe then you would have a claim under the force majeure 
um, provision. Same with the landlord, same other, you know, goes both ways, right? So it's really simple. It's an act of God provision. Really don't need to go in more into it than that. Um, if you have more questions and you have a contract of that, Zola with an attorney, of course. Waiver of jury trial. This is not always in contracts, but sometimes it is. And it's a really, really big deal, in my opinion. Right? And it's exactly what it says. If you sign a contract with a waiver of jury trial clause in it, you are saying, I am agreeing to waive my rights to a jury trial. Right? Now, there may be times where you don't want to have a jury trial. There may be times where you want to go to arbitration, right? Or there may be a clause that says you have to go to arbitration first, right? But it, depending on how big a claim you have or what's going on, right, there are some legally beneficial reasons for me why you may want to have a jury trial if you're pursuing legal action against someone, right? Again, this is one of those areas where you must be consulting with an attorney if you actually have an actual claim where this might come up. But if you see it in the contract that you're signing, it's important you understand that when you sign that contract, you are agreeing to waive your right to a jury trial. So that's a really big deal. You are giving up illegal rights that are guaranteed to you normally otherwise, right? And it's acceptable because you are, by signing, you are accepting, again, like we said earlier on the previous episode, you are accepting the terms of the contract. When you sign the contract, you are accepting the terms. I accept these terms. So very important that if you see a term like this, that you know what it is and that you, you're prepared to, to accept it. Uh, and again, if you don't know, if you're not sure, that's when you need to be consulting with an attorney. Okay. Um, attorney's fees. So this is a provision that requires a non-prevailing party in a legal matter to pay the attorney's fees on other legal expenses pertaining to, let's say, the contract dispute um, of the other party. In this case, I always suggested you consult with an attorney if you weren't already doing so, because Depending on your state, um, it may not be permitted under state, right? Certain some states have certain provisions restricting it or are not allowing it. Um, so again, you need to be consulting with an attorney if you see a clause like this, because if you don't and you sign and it's a valid clause and you do institute legal action, right? Or let's say you're the person paying rent and your landlord comes after you and they win, you may have to pay their attorney's fees as well as your own. So that's that could potentially be a lot of money. So it's it's something to be aware of. Um, counterparts, again, really simple concept. Even if it doesn't sound it, it just basically means that the parties who are signing a contract are agreeing to sign to allow them to sign the contract without all the parties being present together to sign it. Right? That there may be multiple conversions of this contract people sign. You know, ultimately there'll be one contract, but I may be in one place, you may be the other. I may sign it digitally. You may sign it. You know, physically sign it. Both of us may physically sign it, but we may be in, you know, across on either sides of the country, right? It allows you to do that rather than have to be in the same room signing it together at that exact moment. That's what counterparts means. Agreement supersedes all others. Pretty simple again. This contract, when you sign it, parties are saying this is the final agreement. This is the agreement that, you know, is needed to replace and cancel all previous agreements, whether oral or written. Whatever we agreed to previously, this is our contract. This is the terms in this contract or what matter. This is what we are agreeing to be bound by. Nothing else applies at this point going forward, right? That's what that means, okay? And then un entire understanding, right? Just as I was just saying, you know, sometimes the contract can go under multiple um, revisions. There could be previous discussions about offers and what terms should be. But what's when you see the entire understanding clause, what that's saying is that the parties, when they sign this agreement, they are saying 
the terms in this agreement are the final terms. There are no other terms that are considered. The, the entire entirety of what we are agreeing to is contained within the stock. There is nothing else externally to it that applies here, right? So that's a big, again, that's a big deal because you're saying when you sign it, the terms that are governing whatever the contract is, business contract, services contract, it's all supposed to be in that contract. So those are really some of the, the most basic terms. There are others, but those are the most common, often what we would refer to as boilerplate, right? You know, in almost every contract, some form or another, these contract, these terms in one way or another, um, whether they're all in their entirety or some of them will appear. There are other provisions, of course. They're not as common. I don't feel the need to go into them. Some of them get a lot more complicated. The ultimate takeaway for you here is, yes, it's important. To, and I think it's great. This is a great opportunity for you to kind of understand a bit about what these terms are. But the ultimate takeaway, of course, is that have that understanding, but always be consulting with an attorney. If you are signing or drafting or you're, have a contract that you wrote up, right? have an attorney look it over. Please, <laughs> you don't want to have someone sign a contract that you drew up that's insufficient. That you know, as we mentioned in the previous episode, doesn't meet one of the five criteria and gets struck down. So that that's why this is so important. Yeah. So if you have a contract and you have been reading it, going, I am just so confused by some of the language. You can always pull out that contract, come back to this particular episode, mm-hmm. kind of revisit some of the terminology. Um, to try to gain some extra understanding about what it means, in addition to any consultation that you're doing. But you can always come back to this if you need to listen to it a second time, just to make sure that everything is sinking in. Um, And also, hopefully, this gives some extra clarification. Uh, If you've been listening along going, oh, man, Dan is using all these musts and shoulds, and he's talking (laughs) about all these absolutes. What is going on? Because, you know, we all, we don't do that. In the mental health world, now you understand. Dan is speaking like an attorney, um, and and that is the difference. If you've been noticing those shoulds and musts, uh, it's because our training is just very different and informs the way that we talk um, and the work that we do. Yeah, I mean the other thing is, and, and on that note, when it comes to shall, you know, we as attorneys, our underlying, you know, reason d'etre is that we review the laws. We we are supposed to know the laws. We're supposed to be able to review legal contracts to make sure they comply with the laws, right? In practitioners, by what the very nature of what you do, and this is in no way demeaning what it is, but you're, it's a process of talking. It's a process of, of treating, providing service, therapy service to other people. So it involves dialogue. It involves communication. Contracts are communicating, communicating something too. But they have to be black and white. They can't be ambiguous because if contracts are ambiguous, right? When there's a dispute, what happens? I don't know, right? That's the that's why we use terms like shall, right? Because it can't be like, well, maybe it's this. No, no, no. Contract must say it shall be this way. So there's no question if there's a legal dispute. No, the contract, what does the contract say? It says that this is what's going to happen. Okay. That's what's going to happen. That's what the rule to carry. You know, Maryland, for example, considers the four corners of um, you know what's in a contract. That's what the contract is. If you signed it, you know, unless you can make an argument as to duress or that you know you are in not sound mind or some other defense to signing the contract. If you don't have a defense to sign that contract, if you sign that contract and you agree to sign the contract, generally the terms of that contract apply. 
So they have to be kind of absolute in some ways. And that's why we use that words like shall, right? Because it might, because there can't be ambiguity. Am I supposed to, when am I supposed to pay you by, right? Am I supposed to pay you on this date? How much am I supposed to pay you? How shall I tell you notice, right? Right. It can't be like, well, you know, you could tell me on the first of the month, but, you know, <laughs> if you're really feeling under the weather today and it's just a bad day, I totally get it. But, you know, maybe just pay me in a couple of days. Contract can't do that. That can't happen. Contract has to say you shall pay on this date. Right. Because that is everybody's clear. OK, on this date is when you have to pay me by. And there's no arguments about it. Because if there are arguments about it, that's how you end up in court fighting over. <laughs> and that's what you don't want to have happen. <laughs> that's when things go wrong, right? That's what contracts are supposed to try to do is prevent things, you know, provide an answer so that if things go wrong, there's, it's a, it, you can, can try to figure out what the answer is pretty quickly. So we hope that you found this really helpful today and also a little bit humorous as we're just kind of going over the differences between, you know, counseling or mental health language and also um, some of these legal terms. We hope you've had fun along with this as we're um, kind of laughing about the differences. I love it because I get to talk a little more informally about this stuff, whereas if I were sitting across a lawyer talking to them about this, they'd be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I feel like they'd be like, okay, yeah, but there's so much more complicated aspects to this, this discussion. There is, right? But I think from a layman's perspective, from a practitioner's perspective, there's a basic level of understanding that you can have. And to be well-informed, right? It's so important, right? You should not be signing a contract if you don't understand the terms that are in it, right? That's on you. That is your responsibility, right? Certainly hire an attorney, consult with an attorney to help you do so, make sure they're not missing something. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, it's your signature that's going to be on that contract, not the attorney's, right? So you're going to be the one responsible. You're going to be the one who, if something doesn't go right, you can't say, I didn't, uh, I didn't understand, right? No, <laughs> you signed the contract. These are the terms you should have known. So that's our hope here is to kind of give you the very most briefest basic understanding of what some of these terms are, what things you see in these contracts, you know, more so from my perspective, so that you can walk in your attorney's office and be like, oh yeah, okay. So I understand what consideration is and I understand, you know, what a severability clause is. And is that what this is? And the attorney can be like, yes, that is. But, um, you know, there's this provision over here that you need to be aware of too. And that's the kind of dialogue that you would have. That my hope is that you would have with your attorney. Right. But you now can go in armed a little bit better or more knowledgeable than maybe you were before. So thank you again for joining us. Um, sorry if we're a little long winded. But again, like I said, in, in the first part of this, this, this two part episode, this, these are really important concepts. I think this is among the most important things you can 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 just know a little bit about um, as a practitioner. You know, if for any questions, comments anecdotes. As always, you can always reach us on the web. You can reach us on Facebook. We do want to hear from you. We thank you again for coming by and listening, and we will talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.